Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Seems Like Diet Culture podcast. If you are new here, my name is Mallory Page. I am a registered dietitian, and I created this podcast because I wanted a space to be able to discuss the non-diet perspective. If you're not familiar with the non-diet perspective, it's pretty much the antithesis of diet culture, which is what we see spread around the nutrition, wellness, fitness, and even ED recovery spaces most often. It really tells us that our body size is more important than how we feel, but it can also take a lot of different forms because diet culture is an extremely large industry. It's an extremely large concept. It's influenced the world for so long. And I just am so passionate about providing people with a different perspective to these topics so that they can make informed decisions around their health and how they feel and all of the other topics that I already mentioned. So this week's podcast is one that falls under the current events category. And I will give you the fair warning that it's also something that I feel really passionate about. And although I try really hard in these podcasts to present information without showing a large bias towards one side or another, I do feel like it's important with this topic to say, you know, I do have my feelings at the end of the day that I'll share at the end, but I am still going to try to provide both perspectives and more than anything, give you the actual breakdown of what happened here. And if you're wondering what the heck I'm referencing, because maybe you clicked on this episode and you don't even know exactly what I'm talking about, around two weeks ago, a TikTok was posted by the Washington Post, and it was titled, Why Dietitians Promote Diet Soda and Sweets on Social Media. So this particular TikTok was also accompanied by an article, and I will link the TikTok and I will link the article, but I actually do want to play this for you because I feel like it will give you a much better understanding of why we're even discussing this. So we'll play that in three, two, and one. We analyzed thousands of videos on TikTok and Instagram, and we found that the multi-billion dollar food industry has launched campaigns to sway consumers by essentially paying dietitians to do their marketing for them. We teamed up with The Examination, a new nonprofit newsroom, to investigate. In 2023, the World Health Organization released reports warning people of the health risks of artificial sweeteners, like aspartame, categorizing it as possibly carcinogenic. First red flag, their recommendation is based on evidence of low certainty, and it's considered conditional. But they love a good clickbait. So the soda industry viewed these reports as a threat to their products and a big problem for their industry. And almost immediately, we started seeing these hashtags pop up on social media on the accounts of registered dietitians. One was hashtag safety of aspartame. The FDA has agreed with the Who's conclusion that aspartame is safe. I've gone pretty deep into the science. It's fine to have a diet soda. What these dietitians did not make clear was that their videos were paid for by American Beverage, which is a lobbying group for beverage companies, including Coca-Cola and PepsiCo. A spokesperson for American Beverage said the campaign was warranted because the U.S. Food and Drug Administration has disagreed with the WHO and said aspartame is safe. One of the other surprising findings for us is that the sugar industry has also turned to dietitian influencers to help them with their marketing. 
dietitians wouldn't tell us how much they get paid for these videos, but we heard it can range from anywhere from a few thousand dollars a video to tens of thousands of dollars a video. I could afford with the money offered to me from Greens Powders, not one, not two, not three, not four, not five, not six, not seven, eight of these little bags that I've been wanting if I took those deals. Even when creators included a paid partnership label or put hashtag ad in the caption, it wasn't immediately obvious to viewers who sponsored the videos. People had all sorts of questions, and that's a problem because the Federal Trade Commission, which is a federal agency, says that influencers need to post clear and conspicuous disclosures in their ads and in their videos. The dietitians in these campaigns said the sponsored posts reflected their personal beliefs and that they had full control over the content. I pride myself on giving you accurate, science-backed information. You just have to be a little skeptical, and if someone is delivering a message to you that sounds questionable, then look and see, you know, who might be paying for this message, which is really <laughs> potentially a thinly veiled ad. So this TikTok and the article that accompanies it has gone what I would call semi-viral. I mean, virality is hard to measure because what amount of comments and likes and attention makes something viral. But what I can tell you is it garnered a bunch of attention, not only within the space of dietitians, but also in the space of the general consumer. So for example, in that TikTok that I mentioned, the comments were very quick to criticize the dietitian influencers. And in the article, it seems to be similar. The most liked comment in the article was, I guess people don't realize influencer is a synonym for grifter. All parties mentioned the business, the influencers, and the academy were shockingly sleazy. If I were an ethical dietitian, I'd be pissed. Many people won't trust them again. A second comment lamented, Am I the only one tired of influencers? If these worthless people push something, be it food, makeup, clothing, etc., I won't buy it. Some people even compared this to what happened with the tobacco industry when doctors were, and still are, being paid off to tell the general public that cigarettes were actually good for us. That being said, there was more variability within the TikTok comments. So there were still people criticizing the dietitians, saying thank you so much for these journalistic efforts, getting upset at influencers, but there were opposite perspectives as well. For example, Anahad, who was the lead investigative journalist on this, was directly addressed in a comment by a woman named Andy, who is an RD. And she says, hi, Anahad, why didn't you include my interview? Why did you make it sound like nobody responded? I absolutely did. So it sounds like she supposedly did an interview with them and they did not include it. Of course, I cannot verify that claim, but something to make note of. Someone else states, oh my gosh, this is not journalistic. Many people who aren't paid have read these studies for Christ's sake. Other people agreed with that. This video does not refute any of the objections that many have made to the WHO's classification scheme with respect to carcinogenicity. I can never say that word. Do better. There were other people also that just spoke to the fact that they felt like this wasn't the best use of investigation around these topics because there is a lot of misinformation spread around food, and yet we were targeting this. And the last comment that I'll mention that I found was really interesting is 
Someone commented that they were unsure of how they felt about this because both Whole Foods and the Washington Post are owned by Jeff Bezos. So as you can see, there's a lot of conflicting opinions on this article and TikTok. And as I mentioned, you can go read through these and check out all the comments and see what you think. But reading through this led me to believe that we need to discuss it more. But in order to discuss this, we have to understand what the heck is even going on and talk about aspartame, what the who said, and why it's become this big argument. So before I get really deep in the weeds here, I just want to make note of the fact that I actually have already made an entire Seems Like Diet Culture episode specifically about what happened with the aspartame or aspartame being named as carcinogenic by The Who. So if you want the full deep dive, it is episode 66, Does Aspartame Actually Cause Cancer? To give you a quick summary, in July of this past year, the World Health Organization, also known as The Who, announced that it has determined that aspartame, which is a popular artificial sweetener found in over 6,000 products globally, including everything from diet soda to sugar-free gum, should be categorized as possibly carcinogenic to humans. What this means is that some of the research reviewed by WHO's International Agency for Research on Cancer, which is known as the IARC, shows that there may be a possible link between aspartame and liver cancer, but this science is by no means conclusive like it is for substances like asbestos or tobacco. Many scientists and food and beverage manufacturers have expressed concerns that the label of par possibly carcinogenic will confuse or scare consumers who may have otherwise bought these products, and the FDA actually responded to this and disagreed with the WHO's conclusion about aspartame being possibly dangerous to humans, saying that the WHO's research had significant shortcomings. For instance, the studies that the WHO was basing their recommendations off of were observational rather than experimental, and they were self-reported, both of which makes these studies less reliable. Other studies were based off of rats and mice, not humans, and the amount of aspartame that scientists were giving them was significantly more the amount that humans would consume in a normal diet. The director of WHO's Department of Nutrition and Food Safety, Dr. Francesco Branca, even said that the main conclusion of the panel was that there is no convincing evidence from experimental or human data that has aspartame as adverse effects after ingestion. It was also not possible to have any consistent or convincing evidence from the animal studies. So this is a very quick summary of a somewhat complicated topic, and if you really want to dive into why the WHO made these claims and have an answer to if aspartame is truly carcinogenic and understand more about that situation, I would highly suggest that episode that I mentioned, number 66, because it will answer all of those questions. But we wanted to cover this at least briefly because it connects to everything that's going down within this article and TikTok. Because a lot of the reason as to why these dietitians were making these videos is because of this event that happened with The Who. So you may be wondering how these two connect. And the video clip I played mentions it some, but I want to expand upon this and explain it even more. And to do so, we need to start off with the American Beverage Association. 
So the American Beverage Association is a government lobbying group, also known as a group of people who work together to influence politicians and government officials to act in a way that benefits a specific industry. Now, the ABA represents America's non-alcoholic beverage industry, and this includes hundreds of beverage producers, distributors, franchise companies, support industries. I mean, its members include Coca-Cola, PepsiCo, Keurig, Dr. Pepper, and the list can go on. So what the video and article that I've shared with you proposes is that when these claims came out about the WHO saying that aspartame is potentially carcinogenic, the American Beverage Association and associated parties freaked out because aspartame is a big ingredient in diet soda. And so if consumers are afraid of aspartame, they're going to buy less diet soda. And therefore, this would affect these companies' profits. Now, as I mentioned, this is what the video clip I played you claims. And I state this specifically because I was unable to find an interview with the ABA or associated groups and or find a statement from those groups that said that this was fact. And when we're speaking about something, it's important to know whether we're creating a story in our head that makes sense or we are speaking factually. Now, with that being said, I'm not saying that because we can't find an interview or because they didn't make a statement, this isn't true. To me, it does make sense. These companies are concerned about profit, and the WHO releasing this potentially can compromise or reduce their profit, and they don't want consumers to be afraid of aspartame if it's in their products. And so it makes sense to me that they could be freaked out and they could start to go to different ways of promoting their products in order to resolve misinformation, reduce fear around aspartame, and also increase their sales. So this brings us back to using influencer dietitians to talk about diet soda. Now, when I first saw this clip, I actually wasn't sure if this was real or not. I didn't know if dietitians were actually getting paid by the ABA to do these partnerships, but I did find out from even friends that I have in the space that this was in fact true. These people did get paid and also that it was these associations that were reaching out. So this led me to question, why did they choose this specific type of person, type of influencer, type of dietitian to promote or to talk about diet soda? So the first thing that I want to discuss in that sense is who was picked. So most of the people that were picked, and especially the people that were targeted within this specific article and video, were what I would call non-diet or science-based dietitians. And what that means is similar to what I was explaining at the beginning of this podcast, 
you know, they look to actual evidence-based research in order to make claims and to inform their work. And also, if they are non-diet, which not every single one of the dietitians is technically non-diet, but if they are, they also emphasize the importance of holistic well-being and take the emphasis off of someone's body size, often operating from a health at every size, weight-inclusive approach. So, as you can imagine, some of that conversation is already controversial. And there are many people that dislike that there are dietitians that speak from a non-diet approach, they don't believe in it, and they think it's wrong. So I just think that's something to make note of when we're talking about who was doing these campaigns. Now, those dietitians that ended up doing the partnership, it's hard to say exactly what led the ABA to want to work with them. Because again, we can't interview the ABA and ask them why. Some things that I would speculate are a decent size following. If you looked at the influencers, most of them had pretty substantial followings, mostly over or 100k or so, but I also saw some other people that had lower followings, so I wouldn't say that's universally true. The second thing I would say is they definitely were picking people that were already aligned with this research-based type of perspective because of the fact that the research behind the WHO's claims was in fact not strong, as evidenced by the summary that I read to you earlier. So if someone's really research-oriented and they read through those claims, they're going to agree that technically by the research, the classification of aspartame as a carcinogen isn't very strong. This is pretty much the exact opposite of what some other people that speak about nutrition and wellness-based things say. They will state that they do not trust research, they don't trust science, they don't trust the government, and therefore anything that is quote-unquote chemicals or something like aspartame, they're not going to trust it no matter what the research says. So obviously you could see why the ABA is not going to approach that type of person if that's their viewpoint. Now the last thing that I'll say that I could speculate about as to why they chose these particular people is because they're dietitians and in my perception, dietitians are sometimes more trusted. I say that very, very tentatively because I just don't even know if that's true because of articles like these and unrest currently around the nutrition and wellness space. But in theory, because dietitians have actual credentials in schooling, they should be more trusted by the general consumer. Whether that's true or not, I guess we could debate. So that's why I would assume that they were chosen. And if you're wondering what it would look like to be approached for a partnership, this is typically the process. So the ABA or a group that's actually advertising for the ABA, so it could be like a marketing company that's taking on this case, is going to send an email to the influencer or to the agency that represents that influencer. They're going to state the terms of the campaign and they're going to ask them if they're interested in this. Every influencer partnership is very different in the way that someone approaches you. So someone could include all of the terms of the partnership in their first email, and it could be, 
one TikTok post, one Instagram post, and a three-set story series. And they could say the particular price that they're going to do. Others will say, hey, I have this campaign. Are you interested in this? What would be your rate for this? So it totally depends on the company that's managing the partnership. But no matter what, they're going to explain a little bit about the campaign and the influencer or their agency obviously always has the choice as to whether or not they want to respond and even after they respond as to whether or not they would like to take this partnership. What I will say is partnerships do not happen haphazardly. There is often a lot of back and forth. There is a contract that is always going to be signed in order to solidify the partnership. And there is usually some amount of conversation about the content that is going to be shared as well and the objectives of the campaign itself that the influencer is trying to adhere to when they post their content. That being said, every single partnership is different. I've done partnerships myself as someone that's been an influencer, and I've seen the variation in these things. I've never done a partnership with a company like this that's so large and that's an association, really. So I have no idea what that would be like. So don't take what I'm saying as 100% fact and take that same idea into the conversation that we're about to have about payment. Because as you heard in this clip, one of the big pieces that this journalist was trying to hone in on was how much these dietitians were getting paid. They mentioned anywhere from a couple thousand dollars up to $10,000, I believe, and Honestly, I have no idea what an influencer would be getting paid for something like this. It typically depends on their following size and it depends on their engagement. It depends on the type of content. So it very well could be those numbers and it also very well could be less. It's hard to say. There are really no industry markers that specifically tell us what people charge or what partnerships charge because it's not meant to be disclosed. LinkedIn made an article diving into this and one of the stats that they found is for an influencer with a million followers, they could earn anywhere between $5,000 to $20,000 for a sponsored post, but even with that being said, I mean, they don't specify what's in the sponsored post. So we really just don't know, first of all, why they picked these dietitians, what they paid them, or what the terms of the contract are. But a lot of those things that I mentioned, I imagine hold some sort of validity based off my experiences, even in this space. Regardless of everything that I just mentioned, what I can tell you with 100% certainty is that Influencer partnerships are a very normal thing that happen often, and that is true within the dietitian space, it's true within the wellness space, and in a lot of other spaces. And from the dietitians I've met, especially dietitians that are influencers, they are not just working with any brand. They are working with ones that align with them and on campaigns that align with them. Now, you'll see influencers like the Kardashians that promote things you know that they don't use, but I wouldn't say that that is the norm. And you would be shocked at how many partnership requests these people have coming into their inbox. And 
they have to discern out of those what really makes sense for them to promote based off of their morals and values. So now that we've gone over this information, I feel like we've really set it up for the controversy that unfolds. So you have the ABA freak out. They then decide, supposedly, that they're going to reach out to influencers. They pick dietitians. Dietitians sign contracts, and they agree to doing a partnership. And then dietitians post these partnership videos. Now, here is part of the big argument that came up in this article. When these dietitians posted these social media posts, most of which I saw being posted on TikTok, consumers felt confused about if this post was being paid for and also who was paying for it. So this takes us into the conversation of FTC disclosure. So the FTC is the Federal Trade Commission, which is a part of the U.S. government that's created to protect consumers from deceptive or unfair business practices. And it instructs influencers and brands that are working with influencers to clearly disclose their financial relationship within their posts. They want influencers to put in their text of their posts and in the videos themselves the fact that it is being sponsored. But there is a lot of ambiguity around what this is supposed to look like, especially because every platform is different and the way it shows up on every platform is different. So a lot of the times what you have to have is hashtag ad or hashtag sponsored. And then on Instagram and TikTok, there's a feature that you can select that will then show paid partnership. And For certain brands, you can connect with that brand and it can say then paid partnership with this brand even. But that's not a requirement specifically by the FTC. That's almost like an extra step that's being taken. And then also many brands will even have their own specific hashtag that they want you to use along with the other sponsored hashtags. So this could be anything, but it's usually related to their brand or the product that they're specifically wanting you to promote. Now, the problem with this is no one really enforces this behavior, especially considering there is so many people in the online marketplace and so many ads that are done. So most companies and especially most influencers don't really feel like there are any repercussions to not having people clearly disclose this or not having them follow the specific guidelines that are supposed to be done. And let me tell you, this does happen often within this field. But when I was looking into the examples that were used in this article and video, I actually did not find that these influencers were not disclosing that it was a paid partnership or that they were breaking FTC guidelines. The influencers that I saw and even ones that were shown in this clip did have the paid partnership button on. They did have the hashtag ad. And although I don't know if they specifically said that the post was sponsored, from what I understand based off FTC guidelines, it's kind of a two out of three approach. So essentially, as long as you either have the button or you speak about the fact it's partnership and include that with the hashtag ad, you are good to go. So if these influencers were posting according to the FTC guidelines and also posting their partnerships in the exact same way 
as other influencers post them. Why did these specific examples create so much unrest and so much distrust within the consumer? Well, I think the answer to this is that there was no product that was clearly being sold. What I mean by this is when we typically interface with an ad or a partnership, we see the product that that influencer is selling us. So if someone's selling us Sugar Bear hair gummies, we know that the person that likely paid them is Sugar Bear Hair Gummies Company. If someone is selling us mascara, we know that most likely some part of that mascara company is who's paying that influencer. It feels very clear to say, okay, this person's talking about this product, so clearly they're trying to promote that product, and they're probably being paid by whoever wants that product to be sold. Now, if we compare that to this partnership that these dietitians were doing, it's kind of strange because they're talking about the safety of aspartame, but what product are they selling? Because they're not saying, oh, you should drink Diet Coke or, oh, you should have Diet Soda, right? They're just talking about how aspartame is safe. And also, that then leads us to question, if we don't know what product is being sold, how do we know who's paying for it? And why does this person that's paying this dietitian want us to believe that aspartame is safe. And you can see how that would make someone feel really confused and even kind of icky. Because although the influencers didn't technically do anything wrong by how they posted that content, it still doesn't feel super clear because we ultimately don't know who is having them share it. And I just want to say from the perspective of someone that has done these partnerships, the brand is heavily involved in how much someone knows that they are a part of the partnership. If a brand wants people to know that they're the ones paying for it, they will make it known. But the only way that the American Beverage Association showed any sort of involvement for this campaign was actually through a hashtag. And that hashtag was safety of aspartame. And this is actually the hashtag that then seemed to lead to this journalistic investigation that we listened to at the beginning of this clip that created all of the controversy. Because it's kind of a weird hashtag when you really think about it. And when people saw that, it basically allowed them to go down the rabbit hole of discovering who was really behind this, which it turns out, as we've discussed, to be the ABA. So now that we've gone through all of this, let's discuss a little bit more. On one side, I 100% see why people felt uncomfortable when they were viewing this content. And I'm not saying that as a negative against these dietitians, but I do see the perspective that I was just sharing about how it could feel quite disconcerting to have someone be doing a paid partnership, but not feel like you know who is actually paying for it. And it's hard to know really who's at quote-unquote fault in this situation. Is it the brand because they didn't want to be disclosed? Is it the dietitian because they didn't disclose clearly enough? Is it both of them because they should ultimately all know better to clearly share what's being promoted and who's paying for it? I mean, it's hard to say. But I do think on that end, consumers deserve to know all the information and for these dietitians, I also think when taking into account the partnership, 
it probably would be important to think about how a consumer may feel just feel seeing a paid partnership label without any clear understanding of what is actually being sold. Because ultimately, no one's paying for something that isn't then giving them profit on the other end. And that profit ended up going towards this American Beverage Association. That's the second thing that I would say is ultimately it's up to every single dietitian and influencer what they feel aligned with and what they don't feel aligned with. So in this circumstance, I think it's just important to feel in line with the fact that you are supporting the profitability of these big companies, even if you align with every single claim you made and all of these things are true to you, you may want to keep in mind how other people feel when they know that's what you're promoting. And I'm not saying that's a right or wrong thing. Everyone is always going to be upset about something that someone does, but I'm just saying that it's something to take into account. The third thing I would discuss is no matter what, you should always be critical of whatever you're intaking online. And that goes for anybody, whether it be a dietitian that's a random influencer that has no credential or anything else in between. This is just always the truth and it holds true in this situation and in other situations. Even because someone has a credential doesn't automatically make them someone that you need to listen to. And I say that as someone that has a credential and hopes to build trust with consumers. That doesn't mean I just deserve it because I went to school. Now, on the other side of this discussion, the first thing I want to point out is how the Washington Post did not discuss why people were discussing this in general about aspartame and also what dietitians were saying. And they definitely did not include the fact that there were actually a fair amount of people that discussed this that were not getting paid. So for example, I discussed this. I was not paid. (laughs) I was not approached with the partnership. I had no idea this was going on. And I didn't discuss it because I care about if people consume products with aspartame. I think people should consume what they want to consume. I discussed it because the research that was put out around this did not support the claim that was made. And a lot of people were afraid about it and they wanted it to be broken down. And I explained the information, which is exactly what a lot of these dietitians did as well. They weren't saying necessarily, oh, you need to go out and buy products. They were saying, oh, it's fine if you have a Diet Coke, right? So the difference is that I think still gets a little sticky is that because they were being paid for it, even if they weren't saying like you should go out and buy this, they still in a way are promoting those products versus in someone's position that wasn't getting paid for it, they clearly are not promoting that product. Like, they're just giving you the facts. So, I think that that is part of the challenge of getting paid for it. Even though I believe that all those dietitians stand by what they're saying, I'm also not saying it was a wrong or right thing for them to do to take those partnerships. I just think it's important to reiterate the point that There were many people that shared about this online. I would say most people that shared about this online were not getting paid. The other thing that's particularly interesting about this article is how it targets such a specific group of influencers doing such a specific partnership. 
you know, the wellness industry and the influencer industry in wellness is huge. And if you take it outside of even just wellness or nutrition, it's even bigger. And there are so many problematic things that get discussed online. I mean, people talk about 1,200 calorie diets. People sell green powders that are a waste of money. And even more so, a lot of people promote unsafe, unregulated supplements because the supplement industry is not regulated and or habits. And there's so many different types of problematic posts and even uh, partnerships that we could have talked about. So it is interesting that this is the one that was chosen and especially that this specific very niche group of non-diet haze-oriented research-backed dietitians were chosen because it just seems like a really interesting choice to decide that out of all of the people in the wellness field and nutrition field that don't have credentials, that don't have any schooling, that promote all of this problematic stuff, are not the ones that we're going to talk about. We're going to instead talk about dietitians that have schooling, have credentials, and are taking the time to look at research in order to back the claims that are made. On one hand, I try to think that obviously this aspartame conundrum was a big deal and then furthermore, having a huge association doing a partnership can be a big deal, but I think you guys would be surprised how often really big organizations are getting involved in partnerships. I mean, CVS has done partnerships, Walgreens. I mean, those aren't comparable to the American Beverage Association, But there are definitely huge corporations getting involved in partnerships. So I don't think this is the only time that it's happened. So it also makes you then wonder, why was this a choice? And something that I think is really interesting to note is the fact that the author of this article actually wrote his own weight loss nutrition book with no qualifications. So he, first of all, does not have credentials and is not qualified to discuss this stuff, but also clearly does not align with the non-diet mindset or haze-oriented mindset that these dietitians have, but he did not feel the need to disclose his own biases in deciding to make this article and video. And it does bring up a question of why is it that he did want to focus on this so badly? What made him decide that this is super important to focus on? The last piece I want to add to this discussion is the financial piece. So first thing I want to bring up is I find it quite interesting that we're honing in so specifically on the fact that these influencers are getting paid when it's obviously normal practice to get paid for a partnership. And it's also very normal practice within the wellness and nutrition field to get paid for a partnership from brands that are sketchy and obviously horrible. I mean, if I could tell you how much money I've been offered by just absolutely horrible brands promoting horrible things. I mean, it's a lot. And it's funny how one of the examples they used in this video was how this woman that was a dietitian could have afforded so many YSL purses if she had taken Greens Powder Partnerships. And I feel like that point was used to support their argument 
But really, it kind of brings up the fact that, yeah, it's it's all of these different brands that are offering huge amounts of money to people to promote them. And I'm assuming the difference that people are feeling here is that it's a larger body that is involved in government in some way. And I get that. I get how that can be uncomfortable. I'm not trying to refute that. But I am stating the fact that there are other crappy companies that have high up connections, including, as you heard, the Washington Post, right? And Whole Foods, they're funded by Jeff Bezos. You can decide if you like him or you don't like him, but you'd be surprised at how many things have connections to bigger organizations that you may not even know about, right? A lot of your health food products they're bought by Coca-Cola or Pepsi or so many other things. So you may think that those things aren't involved and that the government isn't a part of it, but it, it usually is to a certain extent. And I'm not saying that that's a good or bad thing. I'm just saying that it, it does happen and that is the reality. So when we look at the partnership and payment piece, it kind of brings up the question of what makes us feel so differently about this one. The second thing that I'll bring up about dietitians is that you will see dietitians in influencer positions for more reasons than maybe what you'd expect. So, of course, I feel like the number one thing is that they genuinely want to help people and they want to spread good information and dispel misinformation. The second thing is that although dietitians go to now six years of school, so four years of undergrad, a internship that can last a year to two years, and or a master's program that can either be connected to your internship or separate that could be a year to two years. There's a lot of school, right? And you acquire a lot of debt in those programs. And yet, dietitians are such an underpaid field. And because of this, it's not only hard for people to stay in the field, especially in more quote-unquote available positions like clinical dietitian, but it's also hard for people to have longevity in the field because of the fact that from what we've seen, even as people increase in their amount of experience in years, their salary doesn't go up much. So they're kind of stuck within a range. And because of this, there are a lot of dietitians that have gone into private practice. And in the age of social social media, there are many dietitians that use that as a tool to help to grow their private practice and ultimately help more people. And I understand how seeing those numbers that someone can make from a post would be really jarring and even upsetting. And I don't think that's a wrong experience to have. But I also do think it's important to bring up that in an underpaid field, sometimes people have to do what makes the most sense for them in order to pay their bills and pay off their debt, just like everyone else. With all of this being said, I want to share my personal thoughts on this. All of the first section of this, I really tried to present you with all of the information and just give you the facts about the situation and then also some things to keep in mind when trying to make your decisions on it. But I do have strong opinions on this, especially as someone that's a dietitian that works in a non-diet research-based way that also has a business that is supported partially by my online presence. I really think it's strange that this person decided to pick this 
one small group of people that represent a non-diet haze mindset, because there's not that many people, I'm telling you, that are doing this stuff, and specifically make a piece that is clearly, in my opinion, biased towards making people distrust dietitians and thinking that what they're doing was insidious and was only for profit, for gain from the government, and to promote things out of bad intention and try to not share it clearly. And the reality is that that's just not the case. There were so many things that were misconstrued in this particular piece that he put together. And it doesn't feel like clear journalism. It feels like very clearly biased journalism that fits his narrative, especially considering he literally wrote a book about weight loss with no credentials. Like, okay, yeah, I'm sure you love non-diet dietitians. So that particular piece of it is so frustrating because as dietitians, we face so many people that already do not trust us. And after going through so much school and taking so much time and trying to share all this information, it's such a bummer because ultimately all I want to do is help people. And all of the dietitians I've met that are in this mindset, it's the same for them. Like they're not trying to harm people. They're not trying to make it worse. So it just sucks to see this. And I've already seen the effects of this. I've had people commenting on my podcast saying things like, what did you get paid from? It's so clear that you're just a transplant that's spread to here to spread false information. And so many people in my comments, I mean, it's wild. And I think that this is the direct effect, not just of this article, but of things that try to purposely create distrust within people that are actually trying to do the best they can to dispel misinformation. So that piece is so hard. That being said, all of the things that I mentioned about the challenges of someone promoting something that doesn't have a clear product and the consumer not feeling totally certain about that, I think that's a huge shortcoming of everything that happened here. I do think whenever something like that happens, it can just be weird to see and I don't think that means a dietitian shouldn't have done it, but I do understand that point of concern or that feeling of like, oh, what's going on here? That being said, again, I also think that it's so strange that this is the conversation we're having when there are literally supplements out there that influencers have promoted that have killed people. On that same note, I think it's interesting that the state of wellness culture right now is just so based off of people's biases. So, for example, a big trend right now is raw milk, and it's fine if you want to drink raw milk. I have a whole post where I talk a little bit more about my thoughts. If that's your thing, that's your thing, but there are real risks to raw milk. You know, it has and can kill people or give you bad infections or not be good for you. And yet, people in the wellness space will promote that and act as if there's not any risk at all. And yet, on the contrary, they will act as if aspartame will kill you upon consuming it even though there's not research to support that. And I'm not saying that you should have aspartame and shouldn't have raw milk or that you shouldn't have aspartame and you should have raw milk. I'm saying it is ultimately up to you what you want to do. 
But that is very interesting. When you really look at it, if people are afraid that it's going to kill you, then why are there only certain things that feel important enough? And the argument for raw milk that people always say is, well, I've been drinking it for eight years and it hasn't killed me yet. Okay, well, couldn't you say the same thing for something like diet soda technically? Like, I'm just saying they're not good arguments. They're they're basically arguing the same way for basically the same type of thing, but they just feel differently about one than the other. I just wish that we were able to have more realistic conversations around this type of stuff and share more of the actual truth because I could have come on to this podcast and just shared this last portion that's my opinion, right? But how effective is that really? Because that's only my opinion and my opinion doesn't need to be your opinion. What my goal is, is always to give you the facts about what happened and give you all the information and ultimately you can decide what your opinion is from that information and it may not align with my opinion and I understand that. And even if I share my opinion, I'm not saying you need to have the same one. But that's what this piece feels like. It feels like an opinion piece that is using bias to propel a narrative forward that is based off of something that really isn't necessarily fully accurate. And it sucks that this happened. It sucks the effects that it will have. And I'm just bummed that this was the choice. But I hope no matter what, you feel like you stepped away from this podcast today with a lot more clear information on what happened so that you can form your opinions and feel more educated on this topic moving forward. So I really appreciate you listening. And if you ever have a topic idea that you want to see, you can submit it at the link in my show notes. If you are wanting to learn about the non-diet perspective as a dietitian and are passionate about a research-based way of giving recommendations, my program Live Unrestricted for Practitioners is currently accepting applications. So you can check that out as well in the show notes. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would so appreciate if you shared it with someone, shared on your story, left a rating or review, or even just being here is something I'm so grateful for. So see you guys next week.